Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Josh Mitchell. Josh is a Wall Street Journal reporter who covers debt and finance. His book is called The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe, and it was named one of the best books of 2021 by both NPR and the New York Post. Josh and I talk about the history of government involvement in student loans. We talk about the reasons why college tuition has been soaring since the 1980s. We talk about the value of a four-year college degree. We talk about the similarities between the housing crisis of the 2000s and the current student loan crisis. We talk about President Biden's student loan forgiveness program and much more. So without further ado, Josh Mitchell. Okay, Josh Mitchell, thanks so much for coming on my show. Sure, of course. Thanks. So before we get into the topic of, of student loans, which have been in the news lately, and you know it's a topic a lot of us don't love to think about, but are forced to think about. Before we get into that, I'm curious, just how, what's your background? How'd you get into this subject? And how'd you come to write your, your excellent book on this called The Debt Trap? Yeah, so I actually never took out student debt. I grew up in Washington D.C. or just outside of D.C., raised by a raised by my mom, and uh, she raised me on her own. And she herself never went to college. But I had a grandfather on my dad's side who always let it be known that he had a trust fund for me. And he, the one thing I knew growing up was that I would always be able to go to college for free. So while my mom lived paycheck to paycheck, that was the one sense of, I always knew growing up that I would, I would never have to pay for college. And when I went to college, I didn't have to take on debt. And I went, I decided to become a re- re- reporter. And I joined the Wall Street Journal in 2008. And a couple of years later, I started to cover student debt. And I started writing a few stories on it because it had started rising very quickly. And I didn't plan on it being a beat. But as soon as I started writing stories on it, I got so many people who would email me who really wanted to read more about it. There were a lot of people, a lot of parents who were getting into student debt, a lot of students who were getting into student debt. And they didn't quite understand why college tuition was rising so quickly and why student debt had become such a big deal. And so the more I wrote about it, the more I saw that there were so many people who felt that they had to go to college, who felt that they had to take on student debt, whose parents felt that they had to take on student debt themselves for their children. And then they couldn't keep up with their bills when they came out of college. And they fell behind very quickly on their bills. And the default rates really started to rise. This was right around the housing crisis. And so this really became a project for me over the past 10 years to really unpack what was causing tuition to rise at such a fast pace, what was causing student debt to rise at such a fast pace, and why, you know, I I asked, I started to question the conventional wisdom whenever I would talk with so many people who felt that they had been duped or tricked into this, into going to college 
in taking on student debt, I started to question the conventional wisdom of you had to go to college and you had to take on debt and this was a good investment because I, I found so many people that it was not a good investment for them. And so I spent just about 10 years really trying to unpack on this, really trying to unpack from an economic perspective what was causing college prices to rise so quickly. Why was student debt rising so quickly? And why was there such a dichotomy between what policymakers and economists were saying about the return on college versus so many families that felt like they had been lied to and that felt like it was not a good investment. And I really wanted to understand that. Yeah, I think a lot of us uh, want to understand this. And um, so actually, I think two weeks ago, I saw this movie called Emily the Criminal. I don't know if you've heard of this movie with Aubrey Plaza. So it's this indie film with Aubrey Plaza is a pretty big actress and it's sort of a heist movie where you're rooting for the criminal the whole time and, you know, sort of hoping for her to get the big score. But there's this one scene where the main character, Emily, who is basically deciding between a kind of a life of crime, but has one foot in the door of polite society as well. Her friend has managed to get her this super competitive job interview at this design firm, like the top design firm in the country. And she gets to the interview, her friend pulled a bunch of strings to get it. And halfway through the interview, the interviewer basically uh, surprises her with the fact that this is an unpaid internship. It's an unpaid position that it, that's extremely competitive. The background is that Emily has really bad student loans. She got caught in, in a, you know, she, you know, hit her boyfriend and like has a record as a result. And so can't get a job, but has these student loans from her art degree, her graphic design degree or something like this. And they have this argument where there's this older woman who is offering her this lucrative status, lucrative unpaid internship. And Emily, who is who really needs money. And they have this argument where Emily is saying, it's crazy that you're offering me this unpaid internship. Like it's like, like this is the status quo. I'm going to give you hours of my time. You don't even pay me anything. And this older woman offering the job says, well, you should be grateful because when I was your age, you know, I could only be a secretary. And then Emily retorts, well, were you getting paid? So it's this, it's this interesting moment where you sort of observe that all this progress that's been made on the identity dimension, on the feminism dimension, um, glass ceilings being shattered, has occurred at the same time that debt has ballooned at an order of magnitude faster uh, than incomes have risen. And um, people are facing a very serious problem now of tuitions being $60,000 a year for any degree you get and then coming out of school and, and feeling like you've been lied to about your likelihood of being able to pay that back. Yeah. And, you know, I think colleges have long been so convinced of the excellence of their product that they haven't even bothered to really think about what product they offer. And I think there's just been this assumption that if you go to college, you should be thankful that you're going here. You know, one of the things I show in my book is it's not just private colleges who have become very selective. Now more and more public colleges are over the years have turned away a lot of students that they were intended to serve. And so they're behaving a lot like private colleges. And that's sort of the persona that they adopt. You should be thankful to come here. This is a great investment. And whatever the price tag, it's always going to pay off for you. So there's this prestige factor that has come into play that has really convinced the colleges that 
not only is it okay to charge a lot of money for their product that they should charge a lot of money, that it'll always pay off. And, you know, one of the things I show in my book is the intent of the student loan program was to really force colleges to compete among themselves to bring down the price. You know, that that if you gave everyone a, a student loan, you could essentially allow students to be consumers who were empowered to shop around as they would for a car. And that if you forced the colleges to compete for that student, they would bring the price down. But in the 1980s, colleges figured that, you know, there was such a lack of information on the return on that investment. Students had no information about how much they could expect to earn out of college that they took it as an article of faith that if they went to college, it would always lead to more money when they came out. And so schools started to compete on prestige. There's actually a theory behind this where basically the theory goes, if you are in the market for scotch whiskey, if you go into a store to buy scotch whiskey and you don't uh, know anything about whiskey and the quality of the product, you know, what was a good whiskey brand and what was a bad whiskey brand, the consumer oftentimes would go with the more expensive brand because they just assumed that it was a better product. And so schools started to raise their prices in the 80s to convey to the consumer, to the students, that they were a higher quality school, a prestigious school. And students actually started to associate higher prices with higher quality. And so they would actually gear, steer themselves toward the higher price schools and schools figure this out. And so they would charge their prices merely to attract students rather than cut their prices. And so I think this gets to the point that you're making with the the unpaid internship is these schools have basically taken for granted that students, you know, have this lack of information and have associated higher prices with higher quality. And I think that's one of the reasons why schools have been able to charge so much. I get asked that question all the time. Why has tuition risen so quickly? And the reason why is because schools can't because people assume that high that expensive schools are good schools. Yeah, and they also assume that you should just go to the best school you get into regardless of price because there's a correlation between how good the school is and the pay you'll get. You know, it, it'll all wash out in the end. If you pay more for school, it's going to be a better school. Therefore, you're going to get a better job and you'll be able to more than pay that extra tuition over going to the lesser school which may just not be true for a lot of people and certainly may not be true depending on the major. But I, I, I want to get uh, just sort of into the basic, the very basic structure of our student loan system in terms of economics. So if you strip away everything at its most simple, this issue could in theory in an alternate universe be a, as simple as this. I'm a bank you're a prospective student applying to colleges. I understand that you don't have money now, but after your college degree, you'll be able to make a salary. Say you're going to Georgia Tech. It's a good engineering school. As a bank, I'm going to look up the average salary of the student going to students that get a degree from Georgia Tech. I may look at other attributes about you that give me predictive power over how much you're going to make. I'm going to look at the price of a Georgia Tech degree and I'm going to do the math and I'm going to make a bet in a competitive market over how much money I should give you and at what interest rate it would be worth the risk I'm taking. And, you know, in theory, if there are many other banks that you can also get a potentially a loan for, then I'm in a bidding war with these other banks to get you as my customer. And the whole market makes sense. And I'm not going to give you a loan at such a low interest rate that 
it wouldn't be worth my while because as a bank, I'll go out of business if I do that. Just a very simple supply and demand relationship where some people won't get loans at all for certain things because they're actually not good bets. And people will make good bets and most of those and the industry will be dynamic. And everyone is internalizing their own risks, right? In an alternate world, it could be that simple. And it, it would seem to me there would be no deep systemic problems with the whole student loan system. Can you sort of start from the beginning historically and talk about why that is not the system we have? Yes. So that used to be what student lending was. So in the 1920s, there were private banks that here and there would make loans to students, including to a young student named Lyndon Baines Johnson. And they would do everything you said. They would look at the likelihood of the student's ability to repay the loans. They wouldn't give them a lot of loans, not nearly as much debt as the current system gives. They would look at the school they were going to. They would basically assess the student's ability to repay. Now, the good side of that underwriting that you that we're describing here was that there weren't a lot of students who would default on their loans. The flip side is that a lot of students didn't have access to loans from the 20s to the 60s because private banks would would not take a lot of risk on students that they considered too risky. And the, the so after the GI bill which ran which was this huge bill that Congress passed to help soldiers from World War II reintegrate into the United States. It included subsidies for people to go to college. It was basically offering free college. After that happened, Congress wanted to offer college opportunity for everyone, not just people who served in the war, or at least certain members of Congress did. Because banks weren't giving loans to everyone, just to certain few people, Congress really had to figure out how to expand access to higher education. And there was always this underlying tension. If you give everyone a loan, whether you're a bank or whether, you know, whether it's Congress doing it or you're the private sector, you're if you don't do any type of underwriting, you're going to have a high level of people default on their loans. Because just as you mentioned, there are some people who are going to study stuff that's never going to pay off. You know, it's one thing to go into a high paying field, but there's a lot of lower paying fields. Or there's just people who maybe not be prepared for college. Maybe they didn't get a good education when they were in high school. Maybe they went to a bad high school. Maybe they just, you know, don't have the ability or don't have the, don't want to go to college. There's a lot of people that, you know, are at a very high risk of defaulting on their loans. It was really in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson, you know, had embarked on this broad, ambitious plan to reduce inequality to, this was during the civil rights movement, and to really reduce inequality and offer opportunities for people on the lower rungs of the U.S. to, you know, enter high paying lifestyle that the Johnson administration really made this an entitlement program, which basically said everyone should have access to college. We're going to do this for student loans. We'll give everyone a student loan. And that's where, you know, what you described was a free market where you have private banks who are assessing every single student's ability to repay their loans. How good is the school they're going to? What is the background of the student? You know, are they, do they have the, are they able to succeed in college? Will they be able to repay their loans? That is a free market at work. But if you want to have universal access, you can't do underwriting. You have to basically make this an entitlement program where everyone has an opportunity to get a student loan. And so it was really in the 1960s that Congress basically said, we're going to give everyone 
to access a student loan. And if people default, then so, so be it. And that's what we have. We, if you combine these two things, one of them is giving everyone a student loan, regardless of their ability to repay. And then the other is saying everyone should go to college. That is a very toxic combination. And that is what has led to such a massive level of people defaulting on their loans. It's also what happened in the housing market. I think that there's a very, I I try to make a very big comparison to what happened in the housing market. It was the same thing. Mm -hmm. Through this idea of everyone needs to own a home that started during the Clinton administration, that everyone should own a home because that leads to a certain level of wealth. It helps people on the lower rungs, you know, achieve a middle-class lifestyle. You know, combining really loose access to home loans with this idea that everyone should own a home, that led to the housing crisis. And I think the same thing has happened with the student loan crisis. Yeah, it's until reading your book, I didn't realize just how parallel the cases of the housing crash and the student loan crisis were. I mean, I guess there hasn't been one acute moment where where student loans have destroyed the whole economy. So it's it's easy to miss just how similar the systems are. Can you talk a little bit about the role of, of Sally May in all this? And I think, again, people will be really familiar with this from the housing crisis, um, you know, the, the way in which banks are able to just sell their, dump off their loans, bad loans on government funded entity, which is also private. And so can you explain the genesis of Sally Mae and how that has perverted the incentives for banks? Sure. So, you know, this again goes back to 1965, where LBJ wanted to expand this program. And, you know, the problem was at the time, Congress didn't really know how to account for a student loan program, you know, because you have to put a lot of money up front to offer loans to students. And that looked like a cost at the time. If you wanted to make a billion dollars in loans in a given year, from a budget perspective in Washington, that looked like a very expensive program. You had to put money up front. And so that would raise the federal debt deficit in a given year by that amount. And so LBJ said, here's how can, how we can get by that. We can, we can have banks make the loans and we'll guarantee the loans. And so the banks put the money up and give the money to students. And we will reassure the banks that if students default, you know, taxpayers will come in and repay the banks. And so from the very start, the government relied on banks to administer this program, but the banks never had to take on any risk. Basically, banks were able to make loans to students and they would instantly get repaid by Congress with a nice, with a profit on each loan they made. And so the problem was in the 70s, inflation was a very big problem as it was now. And so banks were saying, they kept on going to Congress and saying, inflation is rising, our own costs are rising. And if you want us to make loans to students, you have to continually raise the interest rate on these loans, because otherwise we're going to be losing money in this high inflationary, uh, with inflation rising so quickly. And so Congress basically said, look, we're tired of coming back every year, raising interest rates on student loans. It's just a mess. Why don't we create this uh, quasi-public agency that will be private? It's actually Its shareholders are actually owned by schools and owned by banks, but we will give them Treasury Department money. So we'll give this private entity taxpayer money in this sort of obscure way that doesn't count, that doesn't raise federal spending, this really opaque way. We will give this taxpayer money to this private entity, and that entity will then give the money to banks to make loans to students. And basically, this was a gimmick to prevent the program from looking expensive from a taxpayer perspective. So basically, it was Congress trying to expand student lending, but in a way that looked as cheap as it could. 
And so it created this, this quasi-public ent- this quasi-private entity that had all of the benefits of, of basically being a public agency. It was able to borrow almost as cheaply as the Treasury Department can borrow. And it would take that cheap money and give it to banks who would then lend that money to students. And then Sally May would buy those loans back from banks. And then the Congress would come in and immediately give Sally May a very good profit for each loan that it it held. And again, I want to point out, Sally May was owned by schools, the colleges, including some of the highest priced colleges, Ivy League colleges, Harvard and Brown and Dartmouth, or Sally May shareholders, as well as the banks. So think about this. This was the mother of all perverse incentives. You had this huge institution that got essentially free cash from the Treasury Department to give the student loans that enabled the student to pay whatever price, essentially, the colleges charged. And then the colleges, not only did that make it easier for them to raise their prices, but they also benefited in the profits that were made off of these student loans. So this became in the 80s, you know, I I have this chart that I wish I would have included in my book. But if you ever want to know when the era of skyrocketing tuition started, it was very clearly in 1981, 1982. And that's really when Sally May took off. It was created in 1972, but it, but Congress had to pass a certain number of laws to really get it up and running. And once those laws were passed, it just took off. So I really pinpoint that as being, you know, when the problem started. Yeah. So I'm sure many have noticed already the really precise similarity to the housing crisis where you could give a person with very low income and very poor credit a teaser rate loan as a bank. And you wouldn't have to do any due diligence or say no to someone because you could turn around the next day, put all of those in in a tranche or a CDO or whatever, and sell those to one of these Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae. Fannie Fannie, Fannie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, yeah. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, yeah. And immediately get a pretty much guaranteed payoff. And when they inevitably defaulted, it's off your books. So as a bank, where is your incentive to deny anyone a loan, no matter how unlikely it is that it get repaid? Obviously, you've got no incentive to do that. And when you pair that with a culture which says everyone should go to college and college is quote unquote good debt and and even these high-minded virtues that I'm even sometimes tempted to believe like college helps you build virtue. It helps you learn how to think. It helps you, you know, all of these things which make college more than a mere product, which make college a kind of an almost religious rite of passage, like a social rite of passage. You can't put a price on a bar mitzvah. You can't put a price on a wedding. It's like college is like that or a funeral, right? It's just something that has to happen that that you have to do regardless of the price. So when you pair that, it's like culturally we've encouraged students not to do a cost benefit calculation on their own taking out of debt. And then we've allowed the banks to not have to do a cost benefit calculation on lending to a particular person. So both the customer and the provider, no one is looking at whether this makes sense. And of course, at the end of the day, this is how you get so many people that wake up in their 20s and 30s feeling cheated, right? That's not a normal, you know, if everyone was really doing a cost benefit calculation, you wouldn't expect so many adults to feel cheated in retrospect, right? You would expect a small number too, because sometimes the bet doesn't work out, but 
Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important to compare the experience of taking out a home loan versus a student loan, because as bad as the housing crisis was, I think the student loan market is even more dysfunctional. So think about this, you know, when I go to borrow to when I go to take on a mortgage to buy a home, even during the housing crisis, the bank has to underwrite. It has to look at how much income you made. And obviously in the housing crisis, a lot of people, you know, were, were misstating their incomes or whatever. But, you know, let's just take a look at now. You know, the bank looks at how much I earn. It looks at my credit history. How well have I repaid past debts? And most importantly, it requires me to get appraisal of the property that I'm buying so that the bank is assured that I'm not overpaying for that house. In other words, if I'm borrowing $300,000, but an appraiser comes and say, wait a minute, that house is only worth 200,000, the bank is not gonna give me that loan. And so there are all these guardrails in place when you're buying a home. There are no similar guardrails when you go out to take a student loan. You're 18 years old, first of all, so a lot of these students, these young people, have never had any experience taking out debt. And then they go to this they go to the college financial aid office and the financial aid officer is working for an institution that relies on this program as their lifeblood. They have to get students to take out student loans to pay the bills, to prevent layoffs, to keep the lights on. This is a lot of in a lot of cases a huge source of money for these colleges. So right there, you know, the institution has an incentive to get you to take out debt. So there's already an imbalance. In the, and the student up until a few years ago never had information on what, the, what they could expect to earn for a particular major at a particular school. You just had to take it as an article of faith. And then on top of that, you don't know what you're going to earn, after, what you're going to owe after four years. So when I take out a mortgage, I know what the balance is going to be. It's one mortgage. I know what the interest rate is going to be. It's stated plainly. I know I'm going to pay over 30 years. I know what my monthly payment's going to be. I know whether I'm going to be able to pay it. And I have all this information up front. And I also have some reassurance based on the appraisal value that I'm not overpaying. With a student loan, you take out one loan. Oftentimes, you take out three loans each year, okay? Three or four loans each year, sometimes four or five. And so it's this really incremental process, you know, a thousand, a few thousand here, a few thousand there. And that's based on what the price is for that year. So you're a freshman. Then you come in sophomore year. Oh, by the way, we've raised the price by 4%, 5%. Now, at that point, are you really going to drop out and say, wait a minute, that's too expensive. That's not what I signed up for. No, the school knows that you're going to re-enroll. You're not going to drop out. So, uh, so they already mm-hmm. can charge you 5%. Oh, and by the way, the interest rate went up because Congress decided to raise the interest rate. So instead of the 5% rate you were paying last year, and instead of the price that you were paying that's 5% lower than it is now, you're now going to pay more, your interest rate is going up, and then you come in your third year, oh yeah, you know, the price, we're going to raise it another 5%. And then you come in your fifth year, you know, I'm sorry, your fourth year, and they've raised the price. And so you have four years of consistent increases in the tuition. You're borrowing three or four loans each year, a lot of them at different interest rates. And then by the time you leave college, you have this huge balance that you didn't know you were going to owe because it's such an incremental process. And the college relies on the fact that you're not going to drop out. You know, once you're in, you're in. Um, Otherwise, you will have wasted the money that you already accrued in student debt. On top of that, one more thing that I think is very important to understand. Starting in the 1990s, Congress, as a way to save money, started charging students interest while they were in school. So a 
a lot of times when students leave college with these huge student loan bills, they've already accrued thousands of dollars in interest before they've even had a chance to pay it back. And so all this means that by the time a lot of students leave college, they owe a lot more than they ever expected. And the monthly payment often is much higher than what they earn once they're out of college, that they start behind the eight ball right away. And I think this is really, you know, this is why it's it's actually a lot worse than borrowing money to than, than taking out a loan to buy a home. My name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman, a platform where I have honest, unfiltered conversations with the world's brightest minds on the most pressing issues of our time. The ability to think freely is what moves society forward. That's why for all fans of the show, I've created the Unfiltered Community. The Unfiltered Community is a space for open, honest conversations about difficult social and political issues. In the Unfiltered Community, you'll also gain access to unaired episodes of Conversations with Coleman, exclusive Q&As with me, and other bonus content. Join me and thousands of others as we challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. Let's change the world one conversation at a time. Join the community today at www.colemanhughes.org slash unfiltered. Yeah, so you mentioned one thing that I've that was really brought home to me when I read Brian Kaplan's book called The Case Against Education, yeah. which came out when I was in the middle of my four-year philosophy degree at Columbia. And I remember I had the, uh, the kind of terrifying experience of halfway through my education, reading this book and realizing that it just explained perfectly why so much of my time in higher education felt wasted and pointless. But there's this dynamic where with, with most products, you don't have to make it all the way to the finish line to get the full value of it. Like if I'm like the sandwich I bought this afternoon, if I'm only hungry for half a sandwich and that satisfies me, I'm getting no further benefit. I don't have to get to the end of the sandwich, right? I can, even if I paid for the whole thing, it actually doesn't make sense for me to eat the second half if I can't save it, right? Because I'm not being made better. I'm actually going to get bloated from that second half of the sandwich. Yeah. But with a college degree, you don't get, if you leave after three years of a four-year degree, you don't get three quarters of the benefit to an employer. All an employer is going to want to know is how come you were too lazy to finish the fourth year, right? Like what's what's wrong with you? Where's the red flag here? So you can't really hop off the train in the same way. And one point Brian Kaplan made in his book is that this is just one of the many signs that what a college degree is doing for you is not pouring skills into your skill set, right? It's not like each year you're being, you know, you're having one fourth of a full degrees worth of skill being poured into your brain. What you are doing partly is signaling not only your intelligence and your, and your competence, but your ability to really be able to stick through tough, tedious, boring tasks, turn things in on time, all of those skills which are very important to a prospective employer who wants to see that you made it four years into the total degree. So I think this is a, I mean, this is one big topic that I think is important to cover, which is the mythology about what college is for. It is to make you a more productive worker, right? Without that four years of college, you, you are learning skills that you're directly going to use in your job. What is wrong with that mythology about what college is for? Yeah, so what you're referring to is the college wage premium, which really, again, started to open up in the 80s. 
And whenever, and this is what I meant by when I started to cover student debt, I would start to have these own questions in my mind and I would interview economists. And whenever there were often times where I would interview them and I would say, you know, I'd question whether college actually really truly is needed to succeed in the U.S., And they would kind of oftentimes have this response, like, how dare you? And the response would often be like, why would you question that when the college wage premium very clearly shows that employers are paying more for college students, for people who graduated college? So that is the evidence that you need to know that college is worth it. And so so that is what a lot of people will argue is that if you know that basically the proof that college is worth it is that is that employers will pay a premium and otherwise why would they? If college did not make you a better worker, there's plenty of non-college students in the United States, so why would the employer just not simply pay them more? But I think, you know, I will say one thing that caused me to question that was when unemployment is very low as it has been now, the college wage premium has actually gone down. And there's, if you look, for example, at LinkedIn or some of these job websites where employers post requirements on what types of jobs require you to go to go to college, these requirements go down when labor markets are very tight. And so I started to, and, and the, when markets are really loose, when unemployment is very high, the job, the college requirements go up. So what caused me to question this idea that you needed to go to college was that right now you have a lot of employers who, because there's such a shortage of workers, are now saying, oh, wait a minute, we used to require this job you know, for the worker to go to college. We no longer need that. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, like if you're taking that requirement away now simply because there's a shortage, did the worker ever need the requirement in the first place? So you know, I do think that on average, there is a wage premium. And, and I did want to point out when you were saying that if you only go to college for three years, you don't get the benefit of going for four years. There is actually a premium for people who do, who have gone to college and having completed versus people who only went to high school. But I still think that there is this big question of whether college actually makes you a more productive worker or whether it's simply corporations using this as a way to sift through all of the applications that they have to go through to fill a job. I don't have a firm answer on that myself about about how much does college actually make you a more productive worker. I do actually personally believe in getting education, but I will say that I do think as a society, we have gone too far down the path assuming that everyone has to go to college and that if you go to college, you're automatically going to be a better worker. And there is, and just to add one more point, you know, and I think Brian Kaplan's book covers this. A lot of the people who go to college probably were going to be successful even if they did not go to college. And so there's this question of, you know, are, college, are, are certain colleges that have such great track records of getting their students good jobs afterward? Is it, is it because the colleges are doing something to make those students smarter? Or is it because they're simply accepting the students who are at the, who are at the, who are, who were already going to succeed in the workplace? Yeah. So another thing I've always found weird is that tuition costs the same amount, no matter what you major in. It's like if I went to a restaurant and the Caesar salad costs the same amount, Mm -hmm. 
as the lobster and the caviar. I mean, there there are sometimes, I guess, what it was it called, price fix menus. But you know, most restaurants don't have that, and sometimes it's upsetting when they do because you only wanted something small. The idea that a gender studies degree should cost roughly the same amount as an engineering degree, that alone seems really strange. And I'm curious, is there any, like, how possible would it be to price things more like a menu? Yeah, you know, one of the things that policymakers have tried to do in the past 10 years, starting with the Obama administration is, you know, give more transparency about the differences between what you can earn in this field versus that field. But yeah, it hasn't really translated into differentiation and in, in the price that students are paying. We can go into income-based repayment, which is this payment plan that the education department offers to tie your payments to you know how much you earn over a lifetime so that if you earn less, you pay less. If you earn more, you pay more. And the Congress is really trying to get more and more people into these plans. But again, this points to what I think is the fundamental flaw of the student loan system is that colleges can charge whatever price they can because they don't Mm. get punished. They suffer no consequence if the student defaults. They get the money up front. And if the student defaults, Congress comes in and repays the lender, or in this case, the Treasury Department is now the lender because the banks are no longer in the program. And colleges get to keep the money up front. So that just points to, I think, a flaw. And this gets into the debt forgiveness plan that I'm sure we'll get to. It doesn't really fix that underlying problem. Right. That people cite for the rapid increase in college tuition since the 80s is administrative bloat. If you just look at the number of administrators, is to say, you know, not professors or deans or anything like that, just kind of mid-level administrators that your average college has, it's just skyrocketed in the past few decades. And I can't remember what college it was, but I saw just the number of diversity task forces that a single college had and, you know, all with just slightly different names and slightly different purposes. And everyone on, you know, each one of those task forces is getting paid, you know, a a decent salary. And the number of those people has just gone up and up and up. And so I'm curious if you think that that is, you know, an important cause of the rise intuition or if that's a sideshow? No, I think it's actually a very important cause. You know, I was actually talking to a college president one time who was the president of an institution that charged a high amount in prices. And, you know, I asked him why he charged so much. And he said, well, you know, I knew that if I charged more, more students would apply to this college, but that he did tell me that he recognized how inefficient colleges were, including his own college. He told me that, you know, he he looked at campus and that on average, you know, most students only went to college four four days a week. And Friday, they just sort of took off. And same thing with professors. You know, most time classes took place four days a week and you're only in session, you know, throughout the school year for nine months a year. And so basically, if you think about how other how any other business would run, that would be a really inefficient way to run your business. And so he had proposed this college president, you know, he had said, look, I recognize that, you know, tuition's getting really expensive and that, um, you know, our costs are out of line. So why don't we run a session and through the entire year instead of students going to school for nine months, let's do it for 12 months. And instead of students going to class for essentially four days a week, let's have classes every day of the week. 
So let's just, you know, expand the capacity of this institution. Let's think of ourselves as a business. And as soon as he proposed that, professors strongly opposed that plan. And they basically really fought, fought him in putting in place that plan. And so I think what you have is colleges have certainly expanded in terms of the uh, bloat that you're, that you just said. But whenever administrators think about cutting those costs, they need a lot of the employees fight against those cuts. And so it's very hard to cut costs. Another point Brian Kaplan made in this vein was it's not only the professors and administrators who complain and resist any change like this. It, it actually, in some senses, the students themselves. Like, so like one curious thing he pointed out was, why is it that students celebrate when they get the last minute email from their professor that there's no class today? That's a very interesting, we all take that for granted, but that's a very curious fact. Because if the point of college is to pour skills into me, right? It's like to literally just make me a better worker. And with each class, I'm just getting one click. You know, my future income is just getting one click higher because of the skills I'm getting from this class. Then I should feel robbed of money, right? I should feel robbed of future money every time my professor doesn't show up or every time there's a snow day. I should feel like the waiter is giving me too little meat on my burger, right? I should just feel essentially robbed. But that's actually the opposite of what students feel. They feel like they're actually getting some of their time back for the same product. So to me, that also betrays some of the mythology about college, which is truth be told, I think it's an interesting question for everyone to stop and ask themselves of the work that you did this week in your job, or even to make it more concrete, the work you did today, how much of the skills required for that work you did today was taught to you in college? And how much was taught simply by learning on the job? What is that ratio? I mean, for me, it's like, you know, 99 to one, but I haven't, I have a very unconventional job. I still think outside of certain very specific and technical professions, maybe like medicine or engineering, maybe coding outside of stuff like that. I think people's answers may not be that different from mine. I think a lot of it also depends on, I think it, a lot of it also has to do with the age at which people are in college. You know, I, if I went to college now, I would read more, I would study more than I did when I was 18. And I think a lot of people, you know, that's why there's a lot of, there is still a lot of dropout rates. It's one of the things that I think is very underappreciated about student loans is a lot of people enroll in college because they feel like they have to, but they're not necessarily, you know, willing to put in the effort to do the homework, to study, to show up to class, to really be eager to learn. And yet they take out student loans and they drop out. Um, and I think this is one of the most underappreciated aspects of student loans right now is, yes, there are a lot of people who went to prestigious schools, four-year colleges. They did go and study. They did sort of do what you're describing that you do, which is to really be eager to learn. But there's a lot of people who are not quite sure what they're getting out of it. Maybe they're you know, not even interested at this point. They're kind of trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. I was certainly like that. And they immediately take on student loans. And then maybe a crisis happens, you know, in their own personal life. Maybe they have a parent that gets sick or and they have to drop out and get a job. Or maybe they just tell themselves, look, I'm not ready for this. But they instantly have an obligation hanging over their head. And if you look at, you know, most people who default 
on their student loans, counterintuitively, they only owe about 8000 in student debt. And again, that's because a lot of them drop out. And uh, it's a very serious problem. Most people who default owe between five and 10,000, 10, and they will have dropped out. And so they didn't get the degree that the student debt was intended for them to get, but yet they still owe the money and they can't get the job that they thought they were going to get because employers, again, as we were talking about, require a lot of these jobs for you to have gone to college. So again, I think a lot of that is a function of youth. I think a lot of it is is just a lot of people at that age don't really know what they want. They've been told they need to go to college and they just, and they end up, they, they drop out after a year or two. Yeah. If you enjoy my podcast, then you'll love this new podcast by Professor Steven Pinker, who needs no introduction. His podcast, The Life of the Mind, covers a wide range of topics, including psychological experiments, language, and even music. The Life of the Mind by Steven Pinker takes us on a psychological journey, unearthing truths about our own complex minds while shattering common fallacies. Pinker discusses how our minds actually perceive what we see and feel in the world around us. So check out The Life of the Mind now. It's accessible on YouTube as well as on your favorite podcast platform. Find the link to the latest episode in the description. So let's talk about Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness program, which made headlines a few weeks ago and was a big source of conversation and and controversy on many levels. I mean, one was the constitutionality of it as uh, can the executive just decree that student loans are going to be forgiven, circumvent Congress to do that. But like, I guess putting aside that issue for now, I'm curious what your point of view on this was. And also if you could just describe, remind people exactly what the policy entailed. Yeah. So during the presidential campaign, during the primary, you had Bernie Sanders advocating to cancel all student debt, $1.6 trillion in student debt. You had Liz Warren, who uh, didn't want to go quite as far, but basically said, let's cancel $50,000 for each person who has student debt, which would cancel out a lot of student debt, probably the vast majority of it. And then you had Joe Biden, who was, uh, you know, sort of more conservative than those two, but still progressive overall, who, when Bernie and Warren dropped out, basically as a concession to the left side of his party, said, OK, I'll cancel up to $10,000 in student debt per household. And so he gets into office and he basically says, I still am in favor of canceling student debt, but I want Congress to pass a law in order to do, do so. I can't do this on my own. You know, the White House can't just wholesale cancel student debt. And after a year of Congress not doing so, President Biden comes out and says, okay, I'm going to use an executive action. And I'm going to basically cancel up to $10,000 in student debt for people below an income threshold. So I think it's $125,000 under which if if you earn under that, you can get up to $10,000 canceled. And if you are a Pell Grant recipient, then you can get up to $20,000. And Pell Grant recipients are basically intended for low-income students. So this policy was meant to be a progressive policy in that the poorest households would get the most amount of debt canceled. And yet, even under that plan, a lot of middle-income households will still get debt canceled. And that's one of the more controversial aspects is, you know, a lot of people from the, obviously on the right, but also some people on the left will say, why not just target this even further toward lower-income households? Why do you have to give people earning in the six figures canceled student debt? But so that's what he's done. I will say this, 
I don't think people appreciate just how much subprime lending, and I think you can even fairly call it predatory lending that occurred in student loans over the past 15 years. I just want to give you several stories that I think will describe what I'm referring to. I one time went out to a two-year public college out, I think it was in Arizona. And I, this was, there were a lot of people who had defaulted on their loans in this area. And I talked to the president of this school and I said, what's going on? You know, why are so many people defaulting on their loans in this area? And she said, well, during the housing bust, Everyone lost their jobs in this area in 2008, 2009. And our financial aid office was flooded with people of all ages, grandmothers, mothers, young people, truckers, people, real estate agents who had just lost their jobs. This was in the depths of the housing crisis. And they were lining up outside of the financial aid office. And they weren't even really, a lot of them were not even intending to go to school here. They were just so, such a need of money to live off of, to put money on the table, that they really were coming to the financial aid office to take out student loans so that they could have money to live. And unlike now, what we've seen over the pandemic where Congress provided a lot of money to households, this was not the case in 2008 and 2009. And so really the student loan program for a portion of the U.S. was basically an aid program to help people get through the downturn after the housing crisis. And so I think this gets to my broader point. If you cancel $10,000 in student debt, you're really going to wipe out in one fell swoop a lot of debt that was never going to get repaid because it was taken out by people who really needed this money to live off of. A lot of people, even if they intended to go to college, were not really able to pay it back, again, as I was just talking about, because they dropped out. And so I don't think it's really understood how much student debt has to do with the housing crisis. And it's just stuck around. And so if you look at what happened after the housing crisis, you had banks that were carrying a lot of toxic debt on their books that was that were bad home loans. And I think the same type of thing is going on right now, where the government has been carrying a lot of bad debt on its books that's tied to it was families taking it on during the housing crisis, but it was student loans. And so in one sense, I think this is basically the Biden administration you know, really sort of saying a lot of this debt is bad debt and it's not going to get repaid and let's just own up to that. Now, there's this other separate issue that I think is very important that I really, you know, can't take a stance on. But there is really a big question about whether this was a constitutional thing that President Biden did. He himself really raised doubts about the ability of the administration, any any administration to just cancel student debt without Congress passing a law. And I think that's really important. And so I can't really address that. I don't have an opinion on that. As did Nancy Pelosi as well. Yeah, and even she said that. As did Nancy. You basically had the speaker, you had President Biden himself. I've talked with people close to the administration who have said this. I think it's pretty understood that there are serious doubts about whether this was something that the administrative branch could done. And I think that that's a very important point. But I also think it's an important point that I don't think people acknowledge or realize that there was just a lot of bad debt on the books that was never going to get repaid. And so when I see the fight that happens on Twitter, you know, whether it's people on the right or left, they sort of this has turned into a flashpoint of the culture clash that we're having. And I personally look at it in more practical terms, which is let's just be honest here what this debt is. And there's a big chunk of it that was taken out by people that didn't know what they were getting into that has really hurt their lives. And we can talk about that. 
that that is really a serious weight. It's a big stressor and it wasn't going to get repaid. And so part of my coverage and, and part of my book over the past 10 years has been intended to really bring all these points to to light, but I don't see that point really discussed a lot in this culture clash that I think that has been a part of. So um, it's my understanding that student loan debt can't be discharged in bankruptcy, and I've heard at least one person recommend as as an improvement to our system to allow student debt to be discharged in bankruptcy. What are the implications or, or consequences of the fact that it can't right now, and how would it change the system if it could? And, and am I right about that fact to begin with? Yes and no. So you can technically get student debt discharged, but the threshold for getting it discharged in bankruptcy is a lot higher than it would be if you were trying to discharge a home loan or a credit card debt. It's this standard called undue hardship, which is this you know standard that was never really spelled out. It's part of the law, but it's been up to a judge you know on each individual case to determine what exactly that means. And the threshold they've used has been very high. And so a lot of people don't even bother to try because it's been so hard to discharge student debt. It's actually one of the points that I've found that there's a bipartisan consensus that one fix to this would be to lower the threshold, to make it easier for people to discharge bad loans and student debt. There's two issues here. One of the reasons why Congress made it hard in the first place to discharge student loan was because they were scared of a moral, they, they feared a moral hazard. They feared that if you tell students, look, if you come out of college and it's too easy to discharge your loans, then you will never really give a good faith effort to repay their loans. You're just going to have students come out, take out a lot of debt, and then they come out and they don't have any money that that they have earned yet. So on paper, they look like they're not able to repay their loans, even though in theory, they're going to earn a lot, earn a lot of money over their lifetimes to pay their loans. It might look like they're poor on paper, and so they're, they're just going to abuse the bankruptcy process and discharge their loans. So there was always this concern of Congress of this moral hazard. But the second thing is, um, and I think this is the bigger explanation as to why Congress has made it so hard for students to use bankruptcy, is because it would cost a lot from a budget perspective. And this, again, is one of the reasons why I think it's important to understand why there's so much bad debt on the books. Congress, in order to save money, to make the budget look good from a taxpayer perspective, has said, we are going to do everything we can to claw back this money from students. And if we make it harder for them to discharge their loans, that means ultimately we can garnish their wages, we can garnish their social security checks, we can hound them and go after them very aggressively because they don't have the option to, to discharge their loans. Ultimately, Congress will get back that money so that we don't have to consider that a taxpayer loss. So from a budgetary perspective, when Congress passes its budget every year, this is one of the reasons why the program doesn't look as costly as it actually is. Because if all of a sudden you say students can discharge their loans in bankruptcy court, Congress has to account for that. And that's going to make the program look that much more expensive. So, you know, one of the points I have made often is, you know, people think, well, Congress doesn't act in the same way that the private sector acts because, you know, the private sector is very greedy and they're trying to make profits. In a way, Congress sort of acts in the same way in in terms of how the budget process works. When Congress and lawmakers are trying to pass the budget, oftentimes they are very hyper-focused on making the budget score, which is essentially the cost of any given program, be as low as they can make it. And prohibiting discharge of student loans is one way that they've made this program look inexpensive. So do you have any 
systemic solutions or fixes or improvements that you would recommend and, and think are could actually possibly happen or or are you without any any recommendations? No, I make several at the end of my book. I would say probably three or four. One of them I do recommend that students are able to discharge their loans. If I think that, you know, the whole point of bankruptcy is to allow people to start fresh that if they find themselves in a bind, there should be a way to escape their debts if they've given a good faith effort, if they've genuinely been screwed over, especially since they're so young and a lot of them don't know what they're getting into. That's the whole point of the bankruptcy process. So I think that's number one. I think number two, one of this, this is a broader point. I think schools need skin in, in the game. That's a phrase that is often talked about in DC, but I think it's actually a very important concept, which is if you are a college and you are charging high prices, you should, if you want to prevent defaults, colleges should have, should suffer consequences for students defaulting on their loans. And the way to do that is to actually go back to the system that was in place before the student loan program was put in place under Lyndon Johnson, which is schools actually used to lend to their students. And so if schools use their own money to lend to students, knowing that the school will lose money if the student doesn't repay, schools back then were didn't charge such high prices because they knew that they would lose money if this if the student could repay. And so I think one potential fix to this problem is to really have schools put up their own money um, as part of this program so that they don't simply get a blank check. So I think that's number two. I think number three, we should move away from this idea that everyone needs to go to college and that everyone needs to borrow to go to college. I wrote a story recently a, a couple of years ago about this apprenticeship program in Kentucky. And it was a partnership between big corporations near Kentucky that partnered with the two-year public college. And instead of students taking out student loans to go to this program, they employers would pay them part-time and then they would be able to go to class part-time and they would learn skills that they could then use with the employers. And basically the program was funded partly by the employers, partly by tech taxpayers, but students didn't have to take out loans. And the average income five years out from people who graduated this program was nearly $100,000. And wow. again, this was not a, a four-year program, which I think has been drilled a little bit too much in our heads that you have to go to a four-year school in order to earn to succeed, I think that there are a lot of other options that we should really sort of teach young people about. And so I think that would be my third fix is uh, to really move away broadly from this idea that you have to take out student loans, that you have to go to a four-year college. There are cheaper options. And then I would say, again, this goes back to if we really want everyone to have an opportunity to go to college, which I do actually think we should. I think sometimes I've gone down too far this path. And I think other people who have become so jaded by the student loan program have gone too far down this path of saying, you know, college, all college is bad, you know, or, or college is not worth it. I actually think there's a danger of going in the opposite. But if we are going to say that we as the United States should provide everyone the opportunity, regardless of your background, to go to college, then I think that is what community college was meant for. And again, if you look at most people who are defaulting on their loans, I would say most or very big portion went to the short duration programs, either at community colleges or at for-profit trade schools, which were essentially meant to be like a community college. So make that free. You know, instead of giving people who are at such a high risk of defaulting on loans in the first place, 
maybe you fund an op, a fund an entire year or two years or what have you, whatever Congress chooses, but give young students a runway to experience higher education, see if it's for them, see if they can handle the coursework without immediately taking on student debt. And I'll just end this by a story that I that I have. You know, I actually covered a free community college program in the Midwest. It was funded by a bunch of wealthy uh, wealthy pe- people in this town that I covered, and they had made college free for 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 two years for people who came up through the, through the K through twelve system. And I interviewed this woman who was nineteen years old who was working behind the counter of a coffee shop and she had took advantage of this program, but she had dropped out. And, you know, I asked her, you know, what, what she thought of the opportunity to go to college for free. And she said, you know, everyone told me that I needed to go to college and I went and I spent a year and yes, it was free, but I had some issues. I wasn't ready for the schoolwork. I didn't know what I want to study. I was depressed and I just dropped out. And she goes, I may go back at some point but I need to figure out life first. And I thought to myself, you know, I've talked Mm. to so many people who are just like her, who have taken on thousands of dollars in student loans. And yet, instead of being able to work behind a coffee shop and not immediately have, you know, this huge amount of debt hanging over them, even if it's $8,000, that's actually a big amount of debt because if you're only earning, you know, low wages and interest is rising, it can very easily turn into a mountain of debt. I've talked to a lot of people like her who have that student debt that stays with them for years and years and years, and it really stresses them out. And it may prohibit them from moving on in life and being able to like sort of live their normal life and re-enroll in college or, or buy a car or what have you. It was just really refreshing to hear someone who had the opportunity to experiment in life as a young person without having to get into student debt. And so my fourth reform would be give people like her an opportunity to spend one or two years in college and see if it's for them without having to take on student debt. All right. Well, on that note, this has been a really good conversation. And uh, I really encourage people to read your book, The Debt Trap. I think it's, I worry the average high school student applying to college might not be old enough to see the full value of knowing knowing everything in your book. But if I could, I would force every college student applying, every high school student applying to college to read The Debt Trap. Unfortunately, I feel like it's one of those things that most people become interested in because they start suffering and then, or their friends start suffering and they want to understand. But either way, your book is a, is a great way to understand these issues. And I really encourage people to read it because we didn't exhaust, I think, even half of what's in there. So um, before I let you go, can you point my listeners in the direction of your Twitter handle, your website or anything like that? Yeah. Twitter is J Mitchell WSJ. So that's J M I T C H E L L WSJ. The book you can get bit.ly slash debt trap book. And yes, thank you. I would love for people to read the book. Please reach out to me if you have stories. I've had a lot of people reach out to me and said that, that they were really touched by it. So yes, thanks. All right. Thanks, Josh. Sure. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.